I encourage you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We are continuing our journey through this letter from Paul to the church in Corinth, who is dealing with a lot of issues. They have a lot of stuff going on, a lot of baggage that they're bringing to the table. And if you've noticed that the first three chapters, Paul has dealt specifically with divisions in the church and how we deal with those divisions. Paul has spent a lot of time outlining the causes of these divisions and how we respond to them. Last week, you might remember that we tackled this very audacious statement in a way that Paul expects us to be united perfectly in mind and thought. And the way that we do that, we saw last week, is that we have the mind of Christ. That as believers, that the Spirit dwells within us and that we walk in his ways. So Paul is encouraging us to walk in his ways. And this week, Paul is going to make just as seemingly unbelievable as a statement uh, to me. If we have eyes to see and ears to hear what he is saying, we'll see just the gravity of what Paul says. In verse 16 and 17 in chapter 3, Paul is going to tell us that we gather together in unity, we seek not to create division, Because together we are God's temple and his spirit dwells in our midst. This is an incredible statement by Paul. And if we have been tracking along the biblical narrative, we'll see. And that's going to be our goal this morning. So before we do anything, what I'd like to do is read our passage this morning, starting in chapter 3, verse 1. And we're going to read all of chapter 3. It'll be on your screen. If not, uh, if you have a Bible in front of you, I encourage you to open up there as well. Here's what it says. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, well, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose— And they will be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, costly silver, gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their, wood, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? 
If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think that you are wise by standards of this age, you should become fools, so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. C.S. Lewis, whenever he would talk to unbelievers uh, about God and the gospel, he said that his goal was to make God so desirable and so beautiful that they wished it were true. That in the way that he would explain it, he would have people just wanting this to absolutely be true. And then C.S. Lewis said he would then turn to the scriptures and show them that it is. Paul has a lot to say about the church. And a lot of us this morning have probably all not been at Alpine for a long time, maybe some of us longer than others, but we've all had different various church backgrounds. And a lot of us might carry church baggage into Alpine, and we can wonder, is church good? Is church beneficial? I've suffered loss. What's going on? Is this even important? Is this even worth it? And Paul elevates the, what we're doing here today as the temple of God, that as we're gathered here today, that God's presence is among us. Do we consider that as we come to church on Sunday morning? I'll be often, I mean, honest, that's sometimes not the first thought in my mind, that as I gather with other believers to expect to be in God's presence with each of you, because God's presence is here. His spirit dwells in his temple, and we are his temple. Now, I've heard sermons taught about, you know, singularly that my body is God's temple, and all growing up through life, and the pastors usually just like apply that as don't drink and smoke and live a, you know, a straight and narrow life, and it's pretty good. You don't want to put bad things in your body because your body's the temple. But Paul elevates it to a way to say, no, not just individually are you the temple, we collectively are the temple. So this should be the reason why we guard and look after our lives. This is why we should be reverent in the way that we speak and hold one another accountable This should affect the way that we pray, the way that we praise, and our presence with one another. So what I want us to do today, we're going to do a few things. We're going to do three things primarily. First, I want us to think deeply about what Paul is saying here and to understand what Paul is saying in this passage about a gardener, then a worker, and then the temple. What we need to see is Paul's use of the temple imagery through the Old Testament and how that connects to Jesus. This is really incredible how Paul is pulling from themes and imagery from the Old Testament to give us this picture today. Then second, we're going to look at to see how the local church uh, functions, and when it functions well, that it's beautiful. It's a beautiful gift. It's like an outpost of heaven on earth. And then lastly, we're going to ask the question, but what about when the church isn't beautiful? What about when the church has caused great harm? Because we don't want to just say, hey, it's great, and all's great, and you just need to get over it and move on. There are people here that have experienced harm by the church, and Paul has something to say about that. 
So this morning, uh, we're going to rush, not rush, but we're going to work quickly through some Old Testament imagery of the temple. Uh, This might feel more like a um, school lesson. I hope not. I hope that I'm able to make it engaging enough, but we're going to just work through this slowly. So I want you to imagine with me what you know about Genesis 1. If you have your Bible over there, you can flip over to Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, what we know is that God creates an ordered world out of a dark, chaotic wasteland by speaking in a series of seven days. And what happens specifically on that seventh day? This is a, you can shout it out. We should know it. What happens on the seventh day? God rests. God comes and dwells with his people. God walks with his people. He is with them. He is communing with them. And God has given humanity a purpose. It's not just to be with him. It's not just to walk alongside of him, but it's to co-rule with him. You see, God gives the responsibility to man to rule over the earth and subdue it, but then also to bless and multiply the earth. So in other words, to extend God's goodness throughout all of creation. Man and God are not just to meant just be like buddies that just hang out. God has given man a purpose. And in here in Genesis 1 is where we see the first temple where God dwells, where all creation is filled with God's glory. The garden is where heaven and earth meet, and it serves as a type of temple where God dwells among his people. But what happens? Genesis 3, sin separates, and God is no longer dwelling with his people. He's separated from them because they will die. And so God makes a way for himself to be near his people. Think of, fast forward to the story of Exodus. The people have been, of Israel have been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. They're disconnected from their identity as God's image bearers. As Moses leads the people out of Egypt, God commands the people to build a tabernacle so that his presence can be among them. Now, what's fascinating about this is that similarly to creation and similarly to the temple, the tabernacle is built and dedicated in a series of seven speeches. And on the seventh day, where God, or the seventh speech, where God comes and rests in the tabernacle to be with his people, it mirror images Genesis 1 where God is making a way to be near his people. But what happens? They mess it up. They can't keep it together. We fast forward to Solomon's temple. Now, we noticed in uh, chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, let's look at this again, where in verse 12, it says, If anyone builds on the foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, or straw. The only other place where we see these phrases used is in uh, the building of the temple. The only other place where we see this is the building is laid of gold and silver and precious stones. I think I have an image coming up here. Yep. We see in 1 Kings that there are images that go back all the way to the garden. So consider in Genesis 2 where all of these precious metals are listed. In Solomon's temple, we have gold and silver laid in. Consider the image of a garden with flowering trees. In the temple, uh, we see that it is arranged where palm trees and open flowers, where Tim lampstands that were configured like trees with blossoms. I just put a few here. But the idea is that in the temple, 
This, the imagery of what God wants us to be drawn back to is the original day when man and God were with each other fully. Do you see the connection of how it goes through? Now see the fourth uh, connection where we fast forward all the way to Jesus. Jesus comes onto the scene, and in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes this claim, that he has come to tabernacle or dwell among us. And in chapter 2, Jesus even says that if you destroy the temple, I will raise it up again in three days. And the gospel writer John, he kind of whispers to us in our ear and he says, he's talking about his body. That when you kill it, he'll raise it up again in three days. Jesus is claiming that God's presence is coming through him in his rest and rule, through his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus is claiming to be the true temple, and this true temple would expand out to include all of creation. Why is this important? Why is this important for us to see the themes of the temple connecting all the way through Jesus? One reason is, is that the further down you go, uh, down the rabbit hole of uh, Jesus, to see, it connect, see him connected through the scriptures, the deeper it gets. Second, consider doubting Thomas. When he comes to Jesus, when Jesus is resurrected, he says, I will, I will only believe if I see the holes in his hand. And Jesus walks through the door, he hands him his hand, and he says, you have seen, but blessed are those who believe and have not seen. Jesus is going to tell us in Matthew 24 that in the last days, that there are going to be many that come claiming in my name to be the Messiah. And that there are going to be many that are going to be deceived. It's critical for us to see these connections of the temple imagery and to Jesus because it deepens our faith in him. Or, as we sang this morning, it gives us a firm foundation to see how Jesus is interwoven throughout all of the scriptures. Life is hard and doubt creeps in quickly. And it can be tempting for us to say, okay, look, we're worshiping a guy that was 2,000 years ago. How can I even trust? How can I even believe? Jesus says all of the scriptures attest to him. And if we devote our lives to looking at the scriptures and looking to see Jesus, we will see how it's deeply woven. Now consider what Paul is doing here in this chapter. There are four stages that Paul goes through. First, Paul uses the imagery of a gardener or a farmer. Paul portrays leaders of the church as agricultural workers in a field. In the church, he depicts as the field. God alone gives the increase as a result of the workers. And the gardeners are likened to those who plant and water. Paul is connecting, I believe, back all the way to Genesis to connect his work back to the original creation. Uh, and this is not my idea. I didn't come up with this. Uh, this is actually from a man named D.A. Carson and G.K. Beale. They have a wonderful book on this, about this connection through Paul and temple imagery. But then second, notice the second imagery that he uses. He goes from a gardener to an architect or a worker who constructs a building on a foundation. In First Chronicles, I think it's the next slide, First Chronicles 29, where it talks about uh, the temple being built, it says, I have provided for the house of my God the gold, silver, wood, and precious stones. In 1 Corinthians 3, he says, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, precious stones, wood, he's pulling from this imagery as well. 
But next, Paul goes to the foundation that's being built in Christ Jesus. He goes to Jesus being the true temple of God and that he gives us his spirit and now we are the temple of God where his spirit dwells among us. And then lastly, he shows uh, explicit awareness that the church is the temple of God and that the spirit dwells in the church. Not because believers have done anything to deserve this, but because of the work that Christ has done himself. We are the temple because of our identification with Christ. So why is this important? There is an inbuilt communal aspect to being a part of God's family. Paul uses a metaphor, the body of Christ, to describe Christian community and show how all of us diverse members need each other. There is an inherent assumption of teamwork, cooperation, and unity as the people of God function as the temple. Number two, the temple is where God dwells with his people throughout the biblical story. So if the people of God are the temple, that means it is through these people that God reaches the world. Now consider, in an ancient world, people traveled from far and wide to encounter God at the temple in Jerusalem. Now the people of God are the temple and take God's presence to the world. If the people are the temple, then they must make his glory known to all nations from now until Jesus returns. Okay. Here's what I want us to see, is that the temple was a sacred place. And what would you do at the temple? You would come to offer sacrifices for the atonement of sin. You would come to offer up prayer. You'd come to worship. And so this should then immediately reflect how we see our gathering today. I've made it three Ps for us. How do we do this? How are we the temple of God? By prayer, praise, and presence. Uh, first one, by praise. The temple was a place for people to draw near with their worship. We gather now as a temple of God in his presence to worship him not just in song, but in his word and with our lives. By our complete being, our ongoing task is to serve God in his temple in which he always, uh, in which he dwells and we are a part of. And a part of our priestly task continues by guarding the church. The essential sacrifice that we offer through our praise, Paul will say in Romans 12, is our own body to live as a living sacrifice. And in so doing, we follow our Savior's example who gave himself up for us as an offering and as a sacrifice to God. It's a fragrant aroma. Next, we come and we gather together through prayer. The prayers of the saints are now the incense offerings given to God in Revelation 5 through 8. As we gather together in prayer, our prayer rises like incense to God above. And we saw and we see above already in Israel that there was a sense in which prayer was counted as incense before God. And the Old Testament anticipated a time when incense offerings would be made to God in every place. This means that we come to praise, yes, but we also come to prayer, that we can come to God's temple and confess our sins freely. Christ is the ultimate sacrifice, so we're not bringing the blood of bulls, rams, or goats. We have the blood of Christ that covers us, and we come before him in prayers of confession with one another. And this is where I want to spend most of our time considering is the last one. To do all of these things, 
with prayer and praise, one of the most foremost things that you can do in your life is to be present. Is to be present with others. Your presence to others is a way that God's love is displayed and given to others. Believers, we are, as Peter will say, that we are now a royal priesthood. What does the royal priesthood do? It's like a mediator between God and man. We are, Paul, what Paul will say in 2 Corinthians, that we are now royal ambassadors, making known the ministry of reconciliation to Christ Jesus. To do this, we must be present with one another. One of the most significant ways that you can love others is by being present for them. For them to feel seen, for them to feel valuable, and for them to be safe. You see, you and I, we are hardwired by God to have someone be present to us. And for us in our lives, this could, could range differently. You might have grown up in a home where your parents weren't uh, very um, present with you. Uh, they pushed you off to the side. They ignored you or, or whatever it is. Consider your caretaker this morning, who your parent or your guardian. How did they show you that they were present with you in your life? There was a study done uh, in Harvard, and it's been going on for 80 years now. It's, it's continuing to go on. And they have found that over all demographics, over all races, over all cultures, over all economic statuses, that the number one indicator for happiness is not money, it's not home, it's not status, it's relationships. The number one indicator for our happiness is relationship. And isn't it amazing that in one of the great things that we celebrate about God, that he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he's omniscient, he's all-knowing. But what's the last one? He's omnipresent. He's here with us. The Lord has not turned his back to you. It might be tempting for us to think that we, with our sin and our baggage, as we come in this morning with the different turns that our life has taken, surely the Lord has turned his face away from me. But the wonderful hope of what Paul is showing us here is that in Jesus, because he's the true temple and because we are now people filled by his spirit, that the Lord is in our midst. And we can come to him with confession, prayer, and praise. Theologian Paul Tillich says, the first duty of love is to listen. We're hardwired by God to have someone be present to us. And when we don't have this relational tie, we seek it out to fill it with something else, whether it be alcohol, pornography, drugs, TV, social media, every medium of escapism. But the church is called to gather together and be physically present with one another. Our doing needs to flow from our being. I'm going to repeat that again. Our doing overflows from our being. What this means is, that you cannot adequately love others until you adequately see the love of Christ for yourself. You cannot adequately love others until you adequately see the love of Christ for yourself. You cannot give fully from an empty cup. You, cannot, you only give from a full cup, and the only way your cup is made full is by the love of Christ coming into you, by seeing the love of Christ for you. 
God is love, so we love. God listens, we listen. God is present, we are present. God gives attention, we give attention. We give generously of ourselves so that people may experience the peace of God in our midst. That's why Paul will say, outdo one another in showing honor. Encourage one another. Weep, rejoice with one another. And he's all saying, be present. Be present. Be present with one another. I have uh, been reflecting on this passage uh, this week, especially where Paul says, uh, I planted the seed, Apollos watered. And I was reflect- as I was reflecting on this passage, I started to consider all the people in my life who have been instrumental to my faith. And it has given me a deep thankfulness for the Lord of people that have been persistent uh, and consistent to show God's love and kindness to me. I encourage you to think back on your life. Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe it was a friend who has shown up by your side consistently and displayed the love of God to you. I want to introduce you to a couple of them here this morning. The first one for me is Bill and Brenda Smith. When I was seven years old, uh, Miss Brenda, she put on a play at New Prospect Baptist Church, a children's musical called Hans Bronson. And Hans Bronson, in that musical, it was the very first time I remember clearly hearing the gospel in my need for a savior. I went home that night, and I, I remember going, my mom was uh, getting ready for bed, dad was, you know, locking up the church, and uh, I talked to mom, and I said, I, I think, uh, is it okay if um, I ask Jesus to save me? And she said, of course, let's, let's talk to your dad when he gets home. And so dad got home, and it was a sweet time of, of praying with my mom and my dad and committing my life to the Lord. It was because of their ministry to commit themselves to um, weeks of wrangling a herd of cats and children to try and put on this children's musical that I clearly heard the gospel for the first time. But don't think it's all their work. You see, prior to that, all of my life, all of my life as a little kid getting up every morning, and when I walk in the living room, you know who I'd first see there is my mom drinking coffee, listening to Dr. David Jeremiah, taking notes in her Bible. You know what she modeled for me is a consistency to be in the Word, and it planted that seed in me, and this was just watered that allowed the gospel to flourish, but God caused the growth. I want to show you another uh, person. This is uh, Bill Anderson. Uh, Bill Anderson was a pastor of a small church that my family and I attended when uh, I was in my later years of high school and early years of college. Uh, Bill was one of the first people to invite me into his home and open the scriptures with me. I, I still remember sitting on his back porch and him opening up the Gospel of John and talking about how the Word became flesh and the Word dwelt among us and that this Word is Jesus. And it's just like my mind opened up and it just exploded. It's like I'd read it for the first time. But you know why my mind did that? Because he was faithful to open the Word up with me. With Bill, he counseled me through sin, loss, grief. He poured water on my soul. Another couple, I don't have the picture on here, but they're here with us today is Eric and Lauren Johnson. When I was in college, 
uh, they invited a group of us into their house and they just opened up their doors and they opened the scriptures with us. We watched a video series uh, by Matt Chandler. Uh, their dog, Gus, drove me crazy, made me sneeze all the time. But they were, they were faithful to open up the word and walk alongside me to see Jesus. And you see, in all of these moments, you know what all of these people were to me? Present. They were there with me. They opened up the scriptures. You see, people would travel to the temple and they would have to make themselves clean. But you know what it allowed them to do? It allowed them to enter into God's presence. Now, because we have been cleaned by the blood of Christ, as we gather together, we are in God's presence. Consider the people in your life who have shown you the goodness of Jesus. I don't have their picture up here, but I want to exclaim that another group of people who have ministered to my soul is this church. And how you have walked with Jesus through pain, through loss, through suffering, through church splits, through questions, through doubts, and you have remained faithful to Christ Jesus. I mean, uh, Miss Christie, I just saw you in the back. I mean, I, I can't help but think of how she courageously and bravely, yes, but with great faith entered into surgery, knowing that she would live or she would live. These things are ministering and watering to our soul, and this is the beauty of the local church. The beauty of the local church is that we get to come in here with all of our, our warts, all of our sin, all of our problems, and we get to deal with it. We get to come and deal with it through the blood of Christ Jesus Consider your own life this morning, those who have walked alongside you faithfully. So here's what this means. Because as people who dwell, who are the dwelling place of the Spirit, and as we said, that, that now we are called is to bring God's presence to the earth. This means one thing in particular. One, nothing you do is worthless. Nothing you do is worthless. It might seem mundane. It might not seem like a big deal. I'm sure Ms. Brenda Smith, she had Wednesday nights where she, or Sunday nights where she did not want to go put on that children's program and deal with a bunch of snot-nosed kids. But she did it, and it's proved faithful. And Paul says here that she will receive a reward for that work. Nothing you do is meaningless. You have the Spirit of God in you. And when you are present with one another, when you pray for one another, when you walk through difficulties with one another, it's a little taste of heaven on earth. Now, for those of you who have not experienced this in church, for those of you who have walked through church and the beauty of this church, it, you, this does not resonate with you. This does not connect. You do not feel it. You've not had the same experience. Listen to what Paul says, that their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. In other words, injustice will not go unpunished, especially the injustice that has been done under the banner of God's name. It's going to be taken care of in one of two ways. It's either taken care of on the cross or it's going to be taken care of on judgment day, at that day. I know that within this room, I know that the church has caused real hurt. 
But this isn't a, a place for us to pull away from church. This is a, a time for us then to push into Jesus and see the goodness of who he truly is. He is the true temple that gives us his spirit to walk alongside him. I was, um, we had a uh, member's orientation uh, yesterday. This last story I shared, I shared it last week, or uh, yesterday with them. Uh, that there are two examples in scripture uh, of this Greek word, anthrakia. And anthrakia is the Greek word for a charcoal fire. Now, if you've ever smelled a charcoal fire, you'll know that it has a very distinct smell. It's not like a gas-burning fire or a wood-burning fire. Charcoal fire has a very distinct smell. And we know that smell has a very powerful way of connecting us to memory. Uh, Walked into my aunt's house the other day, and she was making gumbo. And my dad makes gumbo, I make gumbo, but for whatever reason, when I walked into my aunt's house, it brought me right back to my grandmother's. It smelled just like the gumbo that she made. And it flooded me back with all of these memories of my grandparents. I can walk into a store or be in a room of a crowd of of people, and I can smell the perfume of my mother, and it'll bring me right back to my mom. It's like she's right there with me, even though she's not there. It's just ingrained in my mind as a child growing up. Some of the strongest senses we have are with smell. Now, this word, anthrakia, is a charcoal fire, and here we find Peter warming himself by it as Jesus has been arrested. Now, prior to this, Peter has just told Jesus that he will not deny him. He will not leave his side. Wherever Jesus goes, Peter will be there. He's going to lay down his life for Jesus. And now all of a sudden, he's warming himself by a charcoal fire as Jesus is being prosecuted. And a little girl comes up to him and says, hey, aren't aren't you one of his disciples? You know what Peter says? I have no idea who you're talking about. I don't know the man. And another person says, yeah, 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 I've seen you with him. Certainly, you're one of his disciples. And he says, I don't know the man. Then a third time, it happens again. And it doesn't say this in the scriptures, but you get this idea that Peter uses some pretty harsh language to deny Jesus and remove himself and distance from him. And then all of a sudden, the rooster crows, and Jesus and Peter, their eyes lock, and then we don't see Peter again. He disappears off the scene. We know that Jesus goes to the cross, he's tortured, he's crucified, he's killed, he's buried, and the disciples are hiding. And we don't see Peter. Can you imagine the grief and the pain that Peter is feeling in that moment? God, he just, what is going on? Like, I can't imagine the weight of the world that's on Peter in that moment. In fact, Peter, it says, he returns back to his trade of fishing. He just... The last three of his years of his life, even though Jesus said he would die and be raised again, even though Jesus said those words and he heard it in his head and he might have even believed it for a moment, during those three days, he says, eh, probably not. And he goes back fishing. And then all of a sudden, while Peter's on the boat and he's fishing, who does he see on the shore? It's Jesus. And you know what it says Jesus is by? A charcoal fire, an anthrakia. And so here's what's happening here. 
Peter jumps off the boat. He goes up to Jesus, and Jesus meets Peter right at his lowest point, in his lowest position of sin. I can imagine Peter standing by that fire and all of that smell coming back, all of the memories of those pointing out, you are with him, and him saying, no, and here's Jesus, and here's Peter. And I can imagine Peter wanting to explain himself or clear up the air. Jesus meets him right where he's at, at his lowest point, where he would be attached to all of these memories, this smell. And what does Jesus do? He redeems it all. He says, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love me. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Lord? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. What this means for us is whatever you bring here in this morning, Jesus meets you at your lowest point. He doesn't turn his face away from you. He's not ashamed of you. He will meet you right where you are. And he promises to make it new by his blood through the cross for his glory and for our good. Now here's what this means for us. Because we have the spirit and we have the ministry of presence, now we have the honor of meeting people where they are in their lowest sin, in their weakest point. And we get to be the hands and feet of Jesus. It says, the Lord loves you. He's here for you. He's not forsaken you. We get to be the hands and feet of Jesus that provide physical needs for those who are weak and in need. We get to be the hands and the feet of Jesus that just need to listen to someone. I was going to show this video. There was a Guy, I think it was like in Idaho or somewhere, Wisconsin, where it's like snowy, and he just was stalled in his car, and this police officer pulls up, and the police officer says, uh, hey, can I help you? And the guy just breaks down, breaks down in tears, and he says, I could use a hug. Police officer meets him there, hugs him, and they, you know, get him uh, the attention and the help that he needs. There are people in here, but then all around us, who just need a hug. They just need to know that the Lord has not forsaken them. And because we are his temple and his spirit dwells within us, we have this wonderful, awesome role of extending God's goodness into the earth until he returns. Don't neglect any good thing that the Lord has called you to. Uh, we will see that each of us are, uh, will receive a reward in our time. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray uh, that we take seriously this message or this idea that we comprehend well uh, that your spirit dwells among us. And help us, Lord, to not be so distracted that we don't even consider the work that you've called us to. Help us to see the love and the value that you place on us through your son that we can give freely from a full cup. Help us to see others as thou's and not it's. As people and not just things that they do. Help us to see people as you see people. Help us to love people as you love people. And then Father, let us take this word seriously uh, that there be nothing that rises among us that would cause us to divide, to divide the church. Jesus, we need you. Come, Lord Jesus. It's your name we pray.
Amen.